I'm Chris Motes, and this is Faith in Politics. On this broadcast, we range from the soul to the state as we cultivate those virtues and explore those principles that help us live well as faithful Catholics in this great land. Well, we are into September, folks. Welcome back. Thanks for joining us once more. We've got the South Dakota Catholic Conference Book Club launching this week. Tomorrow, September 8th, we are officially launching. We're going to be meeting via Zoom. We've got uh, listeners and Catholics from all across this great state where under God the people rule. Joining us from Rapid City, Aberdeen, we've got some from the Pier, Fort Pier area, and of course, uh, here in Sioux Falls. If you're interested, one of the questions that's come up, we're going to be reading uh, a great book from Ignatius Press, an anthology of Joseph Pieper to get started. But I, I've had the question come up, hey, you know, I'm really busy with work right now, but I'm going to slow down in a month or, or so. Can I jump in kind of mid-season? We're going to wrap things up just after after Christmas, kind of during the Christmas season, but we're going to be going all through the fall and if you want to jump in mid-stride, you're welcome to do that. You can reach out to us via the website, sdcatholicconference.org, click contact us, and I'll get you the schedule so you know when when to jump in. Just a reminder, we're going to be reading this great anthology of Joseph Pieper, uh, Veritatis Splendor, great encyclical of, of St. John Paul II, Prayer as a Political Problem, Cardinal Jean Danielu, published by Clooney Media. We're going to read a collection of speeches of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and then a book on social doctrine from uh, the late, great Michael Novak. So uh, don't hesitate. Reach out. Love to hear from you. And you can certainly jump in mid-stride. Well, for this this episode, we've got uh, back a friend of mine who was on the program last year, episode 25. We talked about Disputatio and the 1619 Project. Jack Gist is a professional writer and teacher. He's published essays, poetry, fiction in journals such as Catholic World Report, Crisis, Galway Review, First Things, The Imaginative Conservative, New Oxford Review, Academic Questions, St. Austin Review, and more. And he's got a new website up, revivalwriting.com, where you can uh, contact him if you need uh, some writing help. But today, we're going to talk about uh, a new article that uh, Dr. Gist, Professor Gist, has had up in the Catholic World Report titled, Individualism, Relativism, and the Most Extreme Form of Idolatry. Jack, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm, I'm really, I really, I, as I've mentioned many times before, I really enjoy your writing. So I'm looking forward to kind of diving into this article that Catholic World Report uh, published on August 30th. But before we do that, I want to ask you, Jack, a question that, that I've asked a number of guests in, in recent months. That's, um, I've gotten just so many great, great answers. Everybody's unique, but there's something profound in, in everybody's answer too. And the question is simply this, Jack Gist, why are you Catholic? That's an interesting question, uh, and I've thought about it quite a lot over the last 10 years or so, or maybe 15 years. Uh, long story short, uh, my mother, I didn't know my biological father, and my mother remarried when I was 10 years old, and she happened to remarry a very devout Polish Catholic man. And so, uh, all of a sudden, overnight, uh, I was I went to a pretty strict Catholic training very quickly. I was baptized, uh, went through confirmation, the whole the whole nine yards, and then I read Nietzsche when mm. I was a, when I was like fifteen, and I, I it blew up my mind. I without supervision, I might add, no supervision. Don't let your children read Nietzsche without supervision. It's a bad idea. Yeah. And, and so I went off the tracks for quite a few years, but I was always interested in spirituality. So I poked around with, uh, I looked into Zen, for example, fairly heavily and, and this and the other thing. But as the years went past, uh, 
uh, something was still missing. Something was always missing. And uh, I happened to live across the street from a Catholic church and I hadn't gone to church in uh, several, uh, I, I, you know, a good, a good amount of time. And finally, I just went in one morning for the, the weekday mass and that something touched me there. And I, I felt the call sort of, and, uh, and long story short though, I, I returned to Catholicism. So I, I lapsed and then I returned because it's the only thing that intellectually makes sense to me. Uh, and I've, I've, I've gone into a great deal of looking at other traditions and everything else. And it's really the only th- thing that makes intellectual sense to me, but more than that, uh, it's the only thing that sort of feels right. We're going to talk about John Dunn Scotus a little bit today. Mm. But, and, and so we'll talk about the freedom of the will. And I think that my, the, my, the freedom of the will tends towards justice. And I think the Catholic tradition, uh, the richness of its literature, the whole experience of being Catholic is the only thing I've got. So it's, it's sort of like uh, when, when Jesus asked Peter and them, are, are, are they going to leave him too? They're, they more or less said, well, we don't have anywhere else to go. Mm, and, yeah. and that's sort of where, that's sort of where I, that's how, where I am too. There's nowhere else to go. This is home to me. And so this is where I am. Oh, it's so beautiful. And I, I can't help but wonder too, I know you, you grew up on a ranch uh, out in Wyoming ranch land and spent your winter times. There's still hard work to do on a ranch in the winter, but you probably have a little more time for reading it's and you were a reader as a kid, you know Tolkien, Flannery O'Connor, even Louis L'Amour. Do you think that the life of the mind kind of churned up as a reader as a kid, maybe prepped some of that um, soil a little bit? Ab- absolutely, I mean um, for sure. And you know, I was a big, huge fan when I was. Uh, uh, pretty young at the time, I read the Lord of the Ring, yeah. and I had no, I had no idea that Tolkien that, that that's essentially. I found out later that he said that's essentially a Catholic story. That's what it is. It's a it's a Catholic tale out of his own mouth, and I think that that had a fairly big impact on me at a, at a very subconscious level. But certainly in the winters, when the wind is howling through the Wyoming prairie, and you don't go outside really unless you have to. You do have to. So you got to tend the animals and everything. I did a lot of reading and, and reading, uh, became my friend. It was, uh, we lived in a sort of isolated place and certainly, yes, reading really helped me, uh, through that period. Ah, uh, wonderful. Well, beautiful. Thank you for sharing that, uh, that snapshot of your own, your own faith journey. So turning to, uh, kind of the article at hand again, individualism, relativism, and the most extreme form of idolatry. I don't know if you wrote this, but kind of the subtitle I want to just read for the listeners here. Uh, I don't know if you wrote it or the, or the editor, but it says, freedom to choose between good and evil, right and wrong, the rational and the irrational is the essential inalienable right of the individual. It is also the heaviest of burdens. That really struck me, that subtitle, because it 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 pretty directly alludes to the de- Declaration of Independence with this inalienable right of the individual. So, it, and, and you're kind of, through the article, you unpack kind of individualism and the whole, sort of this tension, if you will. Um, and you begin with, what is, what is individualism? And maybe that's the best place for us to start the conversation is, what is individualism rightly understood? Rightly understood, uh, I mean, uh, that, uh, the, sub, the subheading there did come directly out of the article. So it, did, it is making an, an allusion to the Declaration of Independence. And in the Declaration of Independence, the founding fathers more or less suggest, you know, that 
it's a it's a new thing in the world. This is the, we're we're making this government to do, protect the right, the inalienable rights, not given by man but by God of the individual. That's what the government's for. It's not for anything else but that, really. And so the individual, and this has been become contentious, right? Even into our own times. Because if we look at the, let's look at the wrong way of looking at individualism first, and that's sort of the Nietzschean way of looking at it, where it isolates you. You yeah. are the, for Nietzsche, basically, and he says it, it's in the article, I mean, I give the quote in the article, but he just said, the famous God is dead quote, we have killed him, how can we uh, handle what we've done except become gods ourselves? Yeah. That's a, that's a, a bad paraphrase but it's 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 it gets the meaning of it yes and and uh so for individual the individual is cut off from the world basically there the individuality is a prison which he wouldn't acknowledge that but the way he puts it we all have to create our own reality we are artists i mean in the romantic version he puts it and he can he's a good writer that's why he can get young people fairly easy uh, but we're all artists creating our own reality, but be able to be able to do this, we would have to be gods. Mm. And that's what he's after really the individual as God. And we see that a lot with relativism that opens the door to relativism, which students talk about all the time. I ask them all the time, well, is truth relative to you? Do you create it? Is it, and they more or less say, most of them say, yes, that's what they've been conditioned to say. There's always a small fraction that doesn't. And that's just, that's where we are today. I think, uh, People want individualism is under attack because it's selfish, it's self-serving, it's uh, uh, get what you can from others, you know, it's, it's all for yourself. Conversely, and way before Nietzsche, the, the Franciscan philosopher and theologian, John Duns Scotus, came up with this idea of a city. I, I'm going to pronounce that wrong. My Latin. I am H-A-E-C-C. E-I-T-Y, for those keeping score at home. Hesiety. Hesiety, I think that's correct. So what's that mean? It's thisness. And for Scotus, and he gets in a little bit of trouble here with uh, some of the Thomists, the Dominicans a little bit, but it's nothing that major. I mean, they're they're, they're in agreement on almost everything except some fine points. Uh, It's thisness and each individual not just human beings, but each individual act of creation is completely unique. Mm. God, and, it, and it's a reflection of God's infinite creative power and free will. And so if you think about this, if you can use the analogy that uh, the body, the eye say, take your eye, for example, that's part of the, a larger hold called your body, but it's unique to your, each eye is unique unto itself. They're not identical in any way. They have their own function to serve as the whole, just as your heart does, every cell in your body does. But they're also uniquely individual. They're individual things that can't, that, and that thisness cannot be removed from them or they would sort of cease to exist. And if you think of uh, even identical twins, humans, identical twins that share the exact same DNA, they're not exactly the same. They're biologically identical, but they have different experiences. I've known some identical twins, most people have, and their personalities are always quite strikingly different. They're not the same personality, at least in my experience. And they have, they react to things differently. They experience things differently. So even they are unique. And this uniqueness uh, is a gift from God, as, according to John Scotus. And it just yes. reflects God's infinite creative power. So 
so kind of contra Nietzsche, SCOTUS is, is asserting that there's an element in our individuality, this sort of uh, irrepeatable uniqueness that's part of us because God has created us. It reflects his ultimate creativity. But there's a part of, of this, of individualism rightly understood, in which it's received. It's not a self-creation. Do I, do I follow that right? That it's, that it's actually received from the creator and it's not something that we make up as if we're sort of the artist making the, the truth or, or just making it to be whatever we wish it to be. Exactly. You hit the nail on the head right there that, that uh, it's received. We don't create it. We're, we, we're not creating reality. We participate in reality. Well, and one of the things that strikes me too about this individuality, you know, kind of according to the, the SCOTUS vision of, of, you know, kind of received from God, this irrepeatable uniqueness, is that this individuality too is by its very nature connected to the whole because it's received from a from a father, from a creator. Um, and that, if, if I understand the way you've described Nietzsche, that's not necessary. That's not part of Nietzsche's vision, a, con- a connection to the whole. No, uh, with Nietzsche, whether intended or not, he never really touches upon this, but he, he sort of sees a, uh, the whole, he, first of all, he sees, he doesn't believe in God. Of course he does. He thinks the universe is just here. Uh, it's, it's, uh, completely indifferent. Uh, there's a section in Nietzsche where he writes a, a little fable of his own that he says, uh, and I, another rough paraphrase here, but in the, in the beginning, there was just this vast universe. And then along came humans, basically a, a clever little animal. And they created knowing yeah. and that was, and that was the most mendacious moment in the history of the universe. But soon enough, the little planet they were on cooled and was gone. And the universe just went on with, as if they were never there. So, and that's a pretty dismal outlook of a pretty, uh, you know, a terrible outlook. So the only solace that Nietzsche can find is that as human beings, we can create things in our mind. The, the irony though, is it doesn't work. Because uh, if, I, if I create my own reality or my own truth, which is, I mean, at face value, that's just not gonna work. But yours would cancel mine out. Somebody else's would cancel yours out. And what it really means is that there is no truth. There is no God. There are no absolutes. There's just this sort of uh, uh, creativity, a will, what, you know, he boils it down to the will to power. Yeah. Uh, and, and maybe herein lies the connection to politics, to social life is, uh, I think the vision that you're presenting of sort of this rightly understood individualism with a relation to the whole, um, that our social life actually depends upon a common conception of the good, of the true. Is that, would you agree with that? I would agree with that. And I would say, I'd say that that was also a gift. So I, I, if your, if your unique individuality is a gift from God, yeah. We, we don't get to create what is good either. We can tune into it as individuals. I mean, it's something we all share in common. And this is another crazy thing about the existentials. I'm thinking of, of Jean-Paul Sartre here, that there is no human essence. There's no human nature. It's, a, it's not a given. It's not inherent in us. We yep. create it. Yep. Uh, 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 
And if that's true, then there's no good either. I mean, it's, it goes to the same thing to truth. If, if I have my own version of good and you have your own version of good and everybody has their own version of good, they all cancel each other out and there is no good. So the good has to be transcended. It's beyond this. And uh, it's sort of platonic. I mean, I don't want to really go there, but at least at least with Plato, he saw that the, a transcendent good. And, and uh, as Catholics, we say that, that, you know, that good is God and yeah. But, but we don't create it. We can tune into it. And, and uh, as we're all individual creatures that, who are gifted our uniqueness by God, it's only right that we tune in and bow down for, and praise that God. Yeah. One of, the, one of the things you say in the article is that this, this type of individualism, uh, individualism, kind of this radically disconnected self-will to power, individualism gone wild invites hell to earth. And then you go on and say, this is exactly what the U.S. Constitution was designed to protect each citizen against. Can you say more about that, um, about sort of the, the, the common conception of the good that was in the mind of the founders as they're creating this, this, this republic and the constitutional structure for it? So the founders are interesting in their, in their that they don't come out and say anything. And I've written another article where it becomes a little bit problem their their usage of nature's god because that sort of leaves it wide open for interpretation but we know this they're heavily read in western tradition and western tradition is basically a christian tradition i mean we have the, we have the ancients but then the, the uh, europe is built on a christian foundation and they were all full they were smart men for for how young they were they were very well read and so when they say that these inalienable rights that are bestowed upon on the individual, they're not bestowed by man and cannot be taken away by man. And with that in mind, and any, uh, the, any, if the, when they're bestowed on man by God, God is in common to everything that exists, and so is the good. And 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 they're here to government is here to protect that uniqueness, if you will, that gift that came from God, from this sort of urge, gnostic urge, in a, in a sense, to. Nietzsche's will to power. Um, and if you, if you look at the scene right now, that kind of individualism is what people think of the individual is anymore. Nietzsche has more to do with it than the, the Christian sense of it. And people think that, uh, you know, sort of a, a hardcore individualism, which the, the founding fathers promoted, means that we're selfish. We all want what we want. We're sort of all trapped in our own desires and we have this will to power. So now what we see is individualism under attack. And this is with uh, critical race theory, especially in your face with critical race theory, where you're no longer an individual. You're part of a group and it's based on an accident, your skin color. Hold on, you're using, sorry, you're using accident in kind of a technical, what do you mean by an accident? It's based I on- can't, I can't control it. I was yeah. just born yeah. into the world. Uh, yeah. uh, I'm, I happen to be Scottish. You know, yeah. I didn't choose to be that or anything. It was out right. of my uh, wheelhouse, basically. Yeah. Right, right. And so, and you see this in a number of, of things. The LGBTQ community, you're stripped of your individuality. You're part of a group. You, if you go against that group, they turn on you pretty quick. I mean, uh, uh, these, if you turn on the group, you're expelled or canceled or whatever they're going to do. So they're stripping the uniqueness, the gift of God from you by placing you, reducing you. It's a, it's a form of reductionism. 
Marxism, really, into this group identity, this political identity of their construction, not God's construction, but their own, uh, which goes against the whole idea of this country, really. To tell you. So if we were going to kind of look for some areas in contemporary life where we need to exercise caution and think well, we could just look at this whole gamut of of identity politics that is, is seemed to be on the ascendant uh, in a really accelerating way, especially in the last year or two. And I, we can certainly point to, you know, the previous decades as well, but that's, um, it's a, it's a great point in the, in the Catholic mind though, these two things aren't mutually, mutually exclusive, right? So it's um, where these identity politics would want to kind of do an either, or it's kind of an all or nothing, I think is the, the term you used to describe Nietzsche's thought all or nothing for a Catholic. It's, we can, we can be a both and right. Exactly. And, and this is a, 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 if you go into sort of the philosophical realm, Kierkegaard wrote an excellent thing, a little book called Either Or. And as, as Catholics, we have a very good, and it's, I, don't, I think it needs to be spread around quite a bit more. We have a both and. It's not exclusive. I can be an individual. I can accept the gift of God of my unique individuality because it's a, it's a testament to God's infinite creative power and free will. But that doesn't mean that I'm isolated from other individuals. We're all joined together in the same body of creation. Everything from the Franciscan point of view, it's not just humans, but everything is joined together in the the greater body of creation. Humans just happen to play a a, a special, significantly special role in that. But we're still all connected. Yeah. That's one of my favorite books that I just all time is a little book uh, by Joseph Ratzinger called The Meaning of Christian Brotherhood. And he kind of unpacks this idea of the brotherhood of all mankind. So there's a special element to our brotherhood as Christians that's, you know, really and truly present for the baptized. But even, you know, we can truly say that we are, we are, we are bound to other humans who we don't even necessarily know or, or don't share a common profession of faith with merely by virtue of uh, our humanity. You know, pr- um, one of the other things you say, Jack, as you're, I mean, you talk about a couple of different things that can bind us together, you know, these sh- kind of a shared conception of the good or um, one of the phrases you use is a higher unity, kind of this uh, bound together in God, this this thing that helps make us whole. But another thing you mentioned that I was really struck by that can bind us is shared experience, shared experience. And you mentioned pilgrimage, and I think you may be... Um, allude to it as sort of a Franciscan part of Franciscan spirituality. Can you say a little more about shared experience and pilgrimage? Well, if you, if you uh, think about when you go to church, that's a, that's a good example of it. When you go to mass and people, it takes individuals that when you go to mass, you're, you're sharing the experience, the, the, the whole the sacred experience of the sacrament uh, together. You're not, you're not alone. We're all, we're, you're all in the same room. You're all there for the same reason, presumably. And you've all, uh, you're a group, you're not, you're, you, you haven't lost your individuality, but you're certainly participating in something transcendent that binds you together. But before you can get to that place, you have to get out of bed in the morning and you have to choose to go to mass. So mm. it's, it, it's both, uh, again, it's both. And the individual makes the choice, uh, and I'm a firm believer that the individual has to make these choices 
between the rational and the irrational, between the holy and the between belief and unbelief, between faith and no faith. That's a that's a heavy burden, and it's an individual burden that each has to make sort of on their own because they're unique. Their their perspective is unique. But once you make those decisions, uh, no matter what they are, it doesn't grant you asylum from being part of creation, part of a great the greater whole that is creation. You can go back to the body analogy, right? Your your uh, your eyes play a significant and 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 specific role to your body. They're, they're individual. There's no, you only have two eyes uh, and that, that no more, no less. And they're unique and in, in, to themselves and they do a specific thing, but they wouldn't be much use without a body that can see or a brain that could receive the vision yeah. and process it. And it needs the heart to pump the blood, the lungs to, uh, uh, the, for the oxygen, the whole bit. So it's all working together as individuals. And I think this is a, if you want to put that in a political, more political frame, America, that's what we're sort of, we're, we, we want to work together for common goals. Uh, and if you look at, you, you mentioned you're going to be reading Solzhenitsyn, one of my favorites. Uh, if, if you look at uh, communism, uh, the kind he experienced, it strips the individual of their uniqueness. Again, it strips them of the gift that was given to them by something higher than themselves. And, you know, he said uh, communism is really, and that he just came out and said it, is a hatred of God. Mm. So, and to deny your individualism in favor of a group identity is to deny the, 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 the gift given to you by God alone. Uh, and so, but it doesn't exempt you. I, I, you don't want to go the Nietzsche way and go, okay, so I'm so unique. It's a gift of God, so I can be God. That's You're missing the point there. You're just part of the body of creation with yeah. a specific part to play. You know, one of the, I want to be careful in talking about vaccine stuff, because I know that there can be a lot of strong emotions. And I, I want to just say that it, there's a lot of nuance and complexity that needs to be brought into the conversation. But I that's a preface to kind of asking, do you, I, I can't help but wonder if if there's some of the, in our pursuit, our social desire to go after the common good, that that we're at times even rejecting a bit or being dismissive of uh, indiv- the individual properly understood. Do you think you've, have you seen some of that? Well, that's a good question. And uh, the, the common good is a whole new can of worms, right? Yeah. Because who decides what it is? So, if you if you say the common good, if you if you just boil it down to sort of a utilitarian, how many people people does it save? You get to, you get to, into that old uh, uh, Dostoevsky problem, right? Or if you're if you kill this one innocent baby, and uh, it's going to save a hundred people, should you do it? I mean, that's a classic out of Dostoevsky. It's a big problem. Right. Or should you not do it? And of course, I think as Catholics would say, you should not do it. Yeah. You should not murder the child for the sake sake of the so-called common good. So what is the common good and who decides? I think we have to look to, uh, as a Catholic, I, I would go contemplate that by looking at tradition, uh, praying and meditating, but a one size fits all for the vaccine. Well, I won't go to get into anything weird on the vaccine because I'm not a doctor or anything, but if you just look at it this way, we know that each individual body is unique, right? In its own terms. Therefore, a one size fits all is probably just uh, realistically not going to work. 
there has to be there's contingencies people have differences to their body they're going to react differently uh all kinds of variables are involved and so i think they all need to be taken into consideration Jack, we're, we're coming up on the end of our time. I do have another question I want to ask. So I'm just going to just pause for just a moment and tell our radio listeners, thank you so much for joining us. Been a, a pleasure to have you with us. If you want to listen to the rest of this conversation, you can go download the podcast on one of your favorite podcast apps and catch the, catch the rest of the, the conversation there. Until next time, live well. And back to kind of our conversation, uh, Jack, one of the things that I want, to, I want to ask kind of as we're, you know, these are, these are difficult it's a really tough question. You know, what is the common good? And it's right in that little subtitle um, that I, I read from at the start, freedom to choose between good and evil, right and wrong, the, ir- the rational and the irrational is the essential inalienable right to the individual. I, you know, that, it just jumped out at me to have rational and irrational kind of framed right next to good and evil, right and wrong. I, I think sometimes in a constitutional republic where our decision-making, kind of our pursuit of the good together, comes down to a 51% vote, we can kind of almost think that that's how the good is determined, is just by majority vote. Or, you know, you talk a little bit about the mob in the article. But can you, for folks that have really never really thought through, like, okay, rationality and irrationality, can, can you say a little bit about how rationality might be a pathway to ascertaining the common good? I think that you have to, uh, this, that's another really good question. And I I wish we actually had more time for this because I'm going to go back to SCOTUS on this one, who does uh, differ from St. Thomas on, on this one a bit as well. And he says the seat of rationality in the human being is in the will, not the intellect. Your will has to be tuned into rationality. What, say more about those, the will and the intellect. What do you mean there? Okay, the, the will is your, uh, you have the intellect and there's some rationality involved there too. Just think it's easier to put it in this way. You can do anything you want and make up reasons to do it. Absolutely. Uh, We've seen a lot of this rationalizing your way into doing whatever you want. It's pretty easy. I have a four-year-old. I know. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So willing yourself to do the right thing is a whole different thing. Mm. And for SCOTUS to will to, to the right thing, it has to be a free act and it has to be tuned into God. And God is a rational creature who exercises free will. So we're, again, it's a reflection of something higher than us, not just thinking your way through it, because what we see now in our, in our American politics, and I think a lot of places is you're right. These people, it's purely a will to power who can muster the votes to get the, uh, it's, it's not even, it's not even rational. I don't think anymore. It's just purely a will to power. If we have the majority, we're going to jam everything we can through, whether you like it or not. If they have the the other person side gets the majority, they're going to do the same thing. There's no more conversation. There's no more dialogue. There's no more searching for the common good. So the common good is always a search. It's not something that's fixed or, or, uh, static. Yeah, and that's a little bit what we talked about last time uh, we visited was the disputatio, sort of this um, engagement in seeking. And so. treating each other as human beings in search of something, uh, because it's not like we're going to ever say, okay, this is the common good and we're going to do this for all time. Yep. We live in a contingent world, so we're, it's going to, uh, with a little bit of faith, a, a, a lot of will and some rationality, we can 
continue on our pilgrimage, if you will, towards the good. Yeah, I you know I think that's something too that gets lost in the shuffle talking about the common good is is that it's not an the common good isn't an ahistorical reality that just sort of is this one thing that is always and everywhere the same throughout every moment of time. It's historically contingent, and it's we have to we have to take in a lot from the world around us and and make judgments and and ask for prudence. So. Well, uh, Jack, as we kind of wrap it up here, anything, uh, anything else you want to add um, to, to put a bow on this? Just uh, uh, we could go real quick to sort of uh, jump back to Aristotle's ethics, uh, uh, his idea Please. that you, you do the pursuing the good is this doing the right thing at the right time for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's not a static thing. We live in a, we live in a dynamic reality. And so you're always going to have to, uh, be in tune. I think that's the big thing with SCOTUS doing. You got you have to be in tune with reality to be able to will towards God. Very, very well put. Uh, Jack Jack Gist. I yep. <laughs> always want to put the, the soft the soft G. Jack Gist, thank you so much for, for joining us. And for listeners out there, if you want to check out Jack's work, you can go to revivalwriting.com. Thank you, Jack. Thank you very much. I enjoy our conversations. Yeah, me too. And thank you as always, dear listeners, for tuning in. If this conversation stretched a little bit, that's a good thing. You know, it's like we go to the gym and, and work out our muscles. Some of these conversations are supposed to be like that for our minds too, to kind of to, to, to use some big words, get out the dictionary. And um, and what a delight it can be too to, to seek truth with others. So as always, love to hear listener feedback. You can go to sdcatholicconference.org, click contact us. Until next time, live well. Live well.